Well, you can keep your Bibles open right there to the Gospel of Matthew. We are going to focus in today on the story right after the one we just read. But I want to first thank all the kids for their great work today in singing and reading and reminding us of the great truths of the Christmas story. Thank you for that, and also thank you to all of you for coming and joining us on this special Christmas gathering. A week ago, on Sunday, we looked at one part of the Christmas story from the Gospel of Matthew, the story that I called the darkest or the saddest part of the Christmas story. It's the story right after the one that we're going to look at today. But this morning, I want us to look closer at a much more encouraging story. It is the story of what happened in the days right before that dark night in Bethlehem. It's the story we know best as the story of the wise men. So unlike in last week's sermon where we were looking at Herod and what he did to the boys of Bethlehem, maybe we weren't that familiar with that story. We probably hadn't wanted to think too much about that story. In this story, we have heard a lot about this. We probably thought a lot about it, even if you haven't read the Bible very much. I assume you know the main parts of this story. And that, that familiarity with the story of the wise men has its advantages, but it also has some disadvantages. Like, like what? Well, for one thing, we can get so familiar with some of these great stories that unfortunately they kind of lose some of their excitement or we lose our interest in the story. That's, that's the way we feel if we're not careful. But another potential disadvantage, and I think this is the case with this story specifically, is that we can start to lose sight of what actually happened in the story. Okay, when a story is told over and over again in books, uh, movies, you know, plays, nativity sets, okay, we can start to forget the original story, what is actually written down in the text. Because this story is only told in one place. It's only in the Gospel of Matthew. It's one story. Do you know what's actually written down? Have you paid careful attention to what's there in the text? For, for today, I want to focus in on the original story. And then after we walk through the story, I want to ask two big questions at the end. One is, what is the point of the story in the Gospel of Matthew in particular? Like, why does Matthew tell the story? None of the other Gospel writers do. And then second, what are we supposed to take away from this really familiar story? Now remember that in the story that we just had read for us, in chapter 1, we learn of the birth of Jesus. My plan is to actually look at that story next Sunday on Christmas morning. But the story today in Matthew 2 happens sometime after the birth of Jesus. But it happens while the family, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, is still in the town of Bethlehem. Because they stick around for a while. And so I want to start reading this story. Matthew chapter 2. Look at verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now, I want to do a little thinking about Jesus and about the wise men. Okay, so from this text, what are we told about, about Jesus in the text? 
We're told right away this happens, this story happens shortly after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Now, what, what do you know about Bethlehem? Yeah, for starters, this is a small town that is very close to Jerusalem. So when you put this story together, it's only about six miles away from Jerusalem. Now, which tribe was the little town of Bethlehem part of? Do you know that? This is part of the tribe of what? Of Judah, okay? Joseph and Mary, as it turns out, were actually both from the tribe of Judah. And so Jesus is from Judah. Now, why does that matter? It's because God promised in the Old Testament that the last great king would come from the tribe of Judah. But Bethlehem's also important in the Bible for another reason, because it's connected directly to one guy. Bethlehem is connected to one guy. Which guy? King David, right? This is where King David was also born. Now, the second thing to note about Jesus is that the text says he was born king of the Jews. He was a royal son, a son of David. In fact, if you look at Matthew chapter 1, that is how our New Testament begins. It begins with a genealogy tracing Jesus back to David, among other, among other people. He was born king. And in the story, that stands in contrast to Herod the king. Okay. Herod the king at the time was not fully Jewish, for one thing, and he had no right from birth to the throne. Instead, his authority was granted to him by the Roman government. And so you can only imagine what Herod would think when he comes to find out that there are these like really important people walking around his city saying, where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? Now, let's think a little bit about these wise men from the east. Okay, so who exactly are these guys? Most of our translations call them wise men. Some, though, like the NIV, you know what it calls them? There's another possibility in the translations. You can find wise men or you can find magi, magi. Now, the word magi is basically just the letters of the Greek word put into English. Okay, that's all, that's all it is. But either way, like what, what does that mean? Who were these guys? What were they? What, why did they show up? Okay, there's a lot we don't know about them, but I think we can say a couple things about them. Okay, for one thing, these guys were really important men from the East. Now, it seems to me to make most sense that they probably came from the area of Babylon or Persia. Okay? There's no indication in the text, however, that they are kings, okay? despite you know, the Christmas carol, we three kings of Orient are. Okay, there's no indication of that. The description magi or wise men actually would not indicate that they were kings. Instead, it would point to these guys being the kind of guys who studied the stars, among other things. Okay? People who were experts in astronomy slash astrology, they're kind of the same in the first century, especially. Okay? They might also have been involved in like interpreting dreams. I think what's helpful is you could think of the kind of people who served in Babylon during Daniel's life, like all the people that the king of Babylon surrounded himself with. This, this kind of terminology is used of those kind of people as well. Okay, now, that's kind of what they were like, who they were, but, but how many of them came? 
How many of these guys showed up? Traditionally, right, the answer is three, right? Three guys. Do you know their, this is interesting, that within the first couple hundred years after the story, there's no indication in the text, by the way, that there were three. But the tradition goes back pretty long, and they even got names by like the 500s. <laughs> Do you, anybody know what their names are? There's actually, depending on what location it was, they were given different names. But anybody got the names? I just watched a movie last night where they have, where they have names. Gasper, this is a really tough trivia question. We should ask this at the Christmas dinner tonight. Gasper, I wrote it down somewhere, because Melchior, Melchior and Balthazar. Okay? But there's actually no evidence for any of that in the text that that was their names or that there were only three of them. But one thing I would point out about them, just as you try to picture the story, is that there is almost no way that these guys traveled by themselves okay? all that way from the east. I mean, it was probably at least a 900-mile journey. And they were carrying, as it turns out, very valuable stuff. Okay? This wasn't two or three guys by themselves doing that journey. These guys were important guys. They almost certainly would have had guards or servants with them, some sort of entourage. You know. So you can imagine the kind of scene they would have made when they come from this distant place into the city of Jerusalem, not to mention into Bethlehem, a little village, and, and start asking around. Where is the one born king of the Jews? Now, third question about the wise men, I think is the hardest one, is how did they know to come? Now, their answer would be what? I mean, this is what they told everybody. They just said, we saw his star in the, in the east. Or if, the, if it means in the east, it says, we saw in the east his star, because they went west. Or we saw his star when it rose. There's different translations. But what's the deal with the star? How did they know to look for the star? And then how could they be so sure, so convinced that they would actually set out on such a long, hard, expensive journey to try to find the king? And we don't know all the details, but I'll touch base on a couple things. Okay. First, it seems to me that these guys must have been familiar already with the Jewish scriptures to some degree. Okay? And I think if they were around Babylon, that makes a lot of sense. Okay? Because guys like Ezekiel, Daniel, and many, many others lived in Babylon. There were biblical books and psalms and so forth that were written in Babylon. Okay? That, that seems to make a lot of sense. And if that's the case, it seems most likely to me that they were familiar with a very specific prophecy from the Old Testament, from the book of Numbers, the fourth book of the Bible. Okay, there is a, a prophecy in Numbers about a future Jewish king who would rule the nations. And, and this is the verse, if you want to look it up, it's Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. It's actually part of many prophecies in that section. Numbers 24, 17, the prophecy says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob, and a scepter will rise out of Israel. It shall crush the head of Moab and break down all the sons of 
of Sheth. It is, it is an ancient prophecy from the time of Moses of a future Jewish king who would come one day and crush the heads of God's enemies. And there's that line. A star will come out of Jacob and a scepter will rise out of Israel. It would seem to me that these guys were likely familiar with that prophecy. But even if that's the case, that doesn't explain everything that happened. I mean, how did they conclude that the specific star they saw in the sky was a signal that that king had arrived in their own lifetime. Okay, so this gets to the second thing about, about this. In, in their study of the heavens, something happened so unusual that they concluded that the time had come. Now, as to what exactly happened, maybe you have ideas about what happened in the sky. There has been a lot written about this. There have been movies made about this trying to argue different things, okay? If you are really interested in that kind of discussion, we can talk afterwards. I feel like most people aren't that interested in this. But I would say for now that there are basically two big options. One, something supernatural happened, like a direct miracle where God put something in the sky to signal to these guys what was happening, or this could have been something more natural, if you will, where God sovereignly arranged the joining of planets or, or the arrangement of a comet or star. There's different options that people try to, try to use to try to explain how they concluded this. But whatever the case, we can say this for sure. Something happened in the stars. God was involved in it, for sure. And a few wise men from the east saw it. They saw what God put in the sky, and they understood the sign. And so much so that they actually changed the rest of their year because of it. I mean, it might have been a year journey to do this, to go there and back. For the next year, they would journey to the west in search of the king of the Jews. So imagine these guys with their entourage of servants or guards, finally arriving in Jerusalem, where the star had led them, and they go around asking people in town, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? Because we saw his star. Now let's see what happens. Look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, so I don't think they actually like went to Herod right away. They were just asking around. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, Herod inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, Herod, of course, is deeply troubled by this. But it's interesting, the city is troubled too. And it's unclear why, but, but perhaps they, it's because they know Herod. And they know what he does whenever there are reports about competitors around him. But all that's understandable. But it's also very interesting to me 
that all Herod has to do is just ask around a bit, and they know exactly where the Messiah is supposed to be born. I mean, they just quote from the book of Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, it's in Bethlehem that there will come forth a ruler who will shepherd God's people. And Herod asks the question, and the religious experts nail the answer. They know the answer to this question. This is not like a debated thing. He asks, they answer, it's in Bethlehem. But isn't it interesting that not one of the scribes who gave the answer actually seemed to go with them, in spite of them not hiding why they're there, and that they had made this journey because there was a star and all this. Like, it's just interesting. One in any case, let's look at the conclusion of the story. Look at verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. That ends up playing into that next story of why he kills the, the boys who are two years old and under. And, but in verse 8, and Herod sent them to Bethlehem, saying, go and search diligently for the child, and when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Well, after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, of course, Herod has zero interest in coming and worshiping this little king. His only interest, as it turns out, is to find and kill this king. But for the wise men, they do get from Herod what they, what they wanted. They got the answer that they needed. The king is born in Bethlehem. And that's not far away. They are less than one day's journey away. <clears throat> and then to encourage them even more, they see the star again. The star that had convinced them months and months before, at least, to set out on the journey seems to reappear, and now it moves a little bit until it came to rest over the very place where the child was. And this brings them overwhelming joy. And here's where we have to remember what was going on in Bethlehem. Joseph and Mary have no idea that any of this was happening. Jesus is perhaps at this point a few weeks or months old. They're staying now in a house in Bethlehem for a while. Things have been seemingly very quiet in Bethlehem since this amazing night of his birth, like when the shepherds came in and, and all this, but things have seemingly been very quiet since then. But then, all of a sudden, this large entourage of people from the east shows up in the very small town of Bethlehem. And these wise men come right to their house where they're staying. And they come in and they see the child and Mary. And what do they do? They fall down and worship him. 
Now that's interesting too. Note that they see them both in the story, right? But they don't worship them both in the story. They see the child and Mary, but they fall down and worship him. He is the one they've been looking for. He is the one God has led them to. They have found the one whom the scriptures, and in their case, even the stars, has told them to look for. And these grown men fall down on their faces before a little child and worship. And then what do they do? They go out to their treasure chests, and they get out incredible gifts, and they give him gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now, there's, of course, been a lot of discussion about that, too. Okay, all the stuff in this story. There's all kinds of opinions about this. Some songs and preachers say a lot about what each gift signifies. And you probably have heard this a lot, right? Gold, you know, is like fit for a king. Frankincense is fit for a priest. Myrrh is used for burial. So, like, a lot of times you'll hear things like that. All of that is super interesting. Maybe there's something to that, okay? Certainly, I can say Jesus is a king. Gold is fit for a king. Frankincense in the Old Testament is directly connected to the priests. Okay? I mean, so there's some reasons people come up with this. And myrrh will turn out to be one of the spices or perfumes used at Jesus' burial. Okay, all of that is true, but I doubt that the wise men from the East were actually thinking about such specific things when they brought these gifts. That's my opinion on it. Instead, I would simply suggest that these were all gifts fit for a king. They came looking for the king, and they brought gifts fitting for the king. Gold is obviously very valuable. Frankincense and myrrh were very expensive, very beautiful. These kinds of perfumes and spices were precious. I mean, these were the best gifts that they could offer. And if anything, I think these gifts actually remind us of some things in the Old Testament. And the one thing that I would point to, these, these gifts remind us more of what the Queen of Sheba brought to Solomon back in the Old Testament. And I think that's just an interesting story. Maybe you're not super familiar with it. But when the queen of far-off Sheba down in Africa heard of Solomon's wisdom, she decided that she had to come and see him for herself, even if it meant traveling many, many miles. And when she got to him, what did she do? She gave him gifts of gold and many, many other similar spices to this as her way to show honor to the king of the Jews. In our story today, all of these gifts were signs of the value these men saw in Jesus. They offered him gifts fit for a king. They offered him gifts that were their very best that they could offer. And they did this because they saw in the newborn king an even greater treasure than what they had in their treasure chest. And here's where I want to come back. I want to think about the two questions I asked earlier. What should we take away from this familiar, beautiful story? What do you see in it 
It's a great story, but, but what should you do with it? I think one of the things we take away from it is, is more about Jesus. We see Jesus more clearly in this story. For example, Jesus being born king of the Jews is a big part of this story. Also, you see, you get confirmation that Jesus is the promised king, signified both by scripture and in this story by a star or some celestial thing that God did to signify and to tell them, this is the king that I promised to send. The one who can crush the heads of God's enemies, who can deliver God's people and who will hold the scepter. But also, I think you learn from the story about Jesus that he is the one worth even more than our greatest treasure. To use Jesus' own words and to apply it back to this story, I think we could say he is the pearl of great price or like the treasure hidden in a field. And that's at least how these guys thought of him. He is the one person who's worthy of everything in your treasure chest. Do you see Jesus as that? And second, we also get a glimpse in the story of what true worship is about. Now, I, to be honest, I, I've spent a lot of time in this text, and I'm not sure how much the wise men understood of the details and of everything that was going on. Sometimes I wonder if they did better than they knew, <laughs> like if they worshiped better than they knew, this kind of thing. But, but they knew enough to look for a sign that would lead them to look for a king. And when they saw the sign, they left everything behind to search for the king. At great cost and even risk, they went on a long journey that could have been unsuccessful. It could have been. But they went out in the hope of just being able to meet and, and to welcome and to honor the newborn king. And when they found him, the one that their hearts longed for, they did the very best thing they could do. These grown men fell on their faces and worshipped a little child. And then they opened up their treasure chests and they gave him the best that they had. That was the wisest thing the wise men ever did. And then to close, I want to come back to the question of why Matthew tells the story. He's the only one of the gospel writers who tells this story. And he actually spends more time on it than even the birth story. That's interesting. So why, like, what is the significance of the story in Matthew? Two things to think about. One I, can't, I won't develop, but you can think about it on your own. The first is that in Matthew, the very first people who come to worship Jesus are these foreigners. They are people from the nations. There is no doubt about that. Most of the people, Jewish people, don't seem to know or have interest in what's going on. But these guys from the east radically changed their lives to go in search of the king of the Jews. It's amazing. Right? 
And then if you think of how the Gospel of Matthew goes, responses of the Jews and what Jesus says about the nations, and then you go all the way to the end, to the last verses of Matthew, what does the Gospel of Matthew end with? Jesus telling his followers, go out and make followers of all the nations. And I think the journey of the wise men from the east to find the king foreshadows this mission that will be for us to go out and find people from the nations, and it foreshadows what has been happening ever since. From the east and the west, from nation to nation, God, in one way or another, has been gathering people from every place on earth to come and to worship the king of the Jews. And that includes us, who've already made that journey to Jesus. But it also gives us hope that there are, by God's grace, many more worshipers still to join in the worship of the king. But lastly, we already see in the early story in Matthew the beginning of the fierce opposition to Jesus, the one born king of the Jews. And that opposition that begins with Herod will reach its climax the very next time in Matthew that they say this about Jesus. In Matthew, there are only two stories where Jesus is called the king of the Jews. You have this story here, and you know the next time. This story and the opposition of Herod and even others from Jerusalem foreshadows the next story where Jesus will be called the king of the Jews. In Matthew chapter 27, there will be many other grown men falling down before Jesus. They too will be calling him the king of the Jews. In fact, they will even crown him as king on that day. But of course, they will be doing all of that to mock him. The crown they give him will be a crown of thorns. And when they crucify him, they will put this specific line over his head. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. The opening story prepares us to see two things in Matthew's gospel. On the one hand, there will be a few, just a few, who will see Jesus for who he is and what he is, the priceless, precious king of the Jews. But on the other hand, by the end of the story, most people will actually side with Herod, who just wants to get rid of the king of the Jews. There is no neutral ground in this story, and there's no neutral ground in the Gospel of Matthew. You either bow before him as your king or you don't. And the same thing is still true today. Is Jesus or is he not the king? Do you bow before him as your king or don't you? This story previews that and it speaks to us where we are today about what we really think about the one we've come here to hear about today. Let's pray. Father, would you take this story that 
I think many of us knew pretty well coming into here, but would you help us to see it for, for what it is? Help us to see Jesus more clearly. Help us to be encouraged by seeing how you could bring strangers from the east to Jesus and how you could continue to spread the good news through us to our neighbors and family even this Christmas season. But Lord, I pray most of all that we will align ourselves with the wise men who see Jesus as the precious gift and treasure that he is. I pray that our hearts will be such that we will bow before Jesus, knowing that he is the promised king, the only one who can deliver, the one who will crush all your enemies and who will hold the scepter forever. Lord, I thank you for this joyful day to be together today, and I pray that as we go through this week, thinking of Christmas much more this week, Lord, I pray that our hearts will be filled with joy, with gratitude, and that you will increase our faith and our allegiance to the newborn king. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.